0: I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's
1: talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod.
0: Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast.
1: Welcome back, Macro Data Refiners. Well, it's all come down to this. The quarter is over. Those rebellious refiners have Grainer's magical keycard and directions for the overtime contingency. They've also discovered the severed floor might not be as well guarded as they've been led to believe. This is going to get really weird. If all has gone according to plan, the innies are about to wake up in their outie lives. It will be frightening, disorienting, in Helly's case, shocking, but above all, it should be very interesting. Refiners, boot up your workstations for the last time this quarter. You need to open the file called The We We Are. This one was written by Dan Erickson and for her ninth in a row, staff writer Anna Oyang Munch. This was directed by Ben Stiller, his sixth of the nine this season. The Wee Wee was first released by Apple TV Plus on April 8th of 2022. The last second of the episode What's for Dinner featured Dylan throwing the two OTC switches. This episode picks up a second later with our refiners waking up in the Audi world. If you want, there is an extensive recap before the episode begins. In black, we get the distant strains of Audi Irv's painting tune, Ace of Spades. As each credit comes on, it stutters off with the Lumen Fritz sound. There are cut-ins to close-ups of Dylan's hands, flipping each of the OTC switches. We suddenly get a stutter cut with all three of the up-top macrodats. The screen is divided in thirds, with Irv on the left, Helly in the middle, and Mark on the right. We hear the lumen sound and see the Zolli effect happen to all three. The OTC worked. Dylan has switched all three to their any persona. The focus moves to Mark. What? He switched right in the middle of talking to Selvig at Rickens' book reading get together in the beer house. A big group is milling around. Something about Mark noticeably changed. Selvig asks if he's okay. Yeah, I'm fine. This is Annie Mark, now standing face-to-face with Cobell, his boss. He's never met Mrs. Selvig. This is different than at work. They seem to be having a normal conversation, unlike the intense and sometimes menacing encounters he has with Cobell down on the severed floor. You child! Any Mark tries to play it cool. So somehow his Audi is friends with Cobell? Okay. She says he should discuss whatever it was they were discussing with his sister. Mark suddenly seems off, confused. He covers by saying he might need the bathroom, but he starts in the wrong direction. I think it's the other way. Ah, those tiny Audi details you just can't predict. Mark seems to recover, but Cobell is left with a concerned look on her face she noticed. This is, after all, the woman who was named most observant at the Myrtle Egan School for Girls. Mark does a complete 180. Right. And heads off down the hall. In the kitchen, he passes Patton. You know, Mr. World War One, who we met at the no dinner dinner party. As Mark gets to a tea in the hallway, there is a Fritz cut to Irving. He's seated at his easel. Irv is holding a trowel full of black paint, ready to be slapped on his latest creation when the transition happens. Motorhead is still jamming in the background. Any Irv is confused as he studies the board on the easel. We see shots from Herb's POV. He scans around the room. We can see his very neat and precise little kitchen area. Then suddenly we're looking at dozens and dozens of dark, eerie paintings, all of the same subject. This would be a frightening place to wake up. Realizing this is actually your apartment might be even more disturbing. Another sound, another Fritz cut, this time to Annie Helly in her dangly earrings and off-the-shoulder gown. We catch a snippet of conversation, but it's not completely audible. Something about not liking senators. Helly turns and says, "Hmm." We find out she's talking with Cobell's good buddy Natalie.
0: How many of those have you had?
1: She points to Helly's glass. Helly haltingly says, "Just the one." Nat is all nervous energy. She says, "They need to get down there." Helly's on in twenty. As we follow the two ladies to the elevator, you can see Helly is in an old school Severance chip dress with blue and green stripes, capped by her red hair. Natalie is adding a red stripe over the shoulder of her dress. Helly is even accessorizing in the Severance theme with blue and green segmented earrings. Natalie tells Helly... I was on with the board earlier.
0: They're really grateful for this.
1: Any Helly plays it cool. Now to find out what this is she's doing. Quick question. If Jame is the board, or at least we know from last episode he would be part of a call to the board, isn't Natalie basically relaying a message from Helly's father? This also raises the question, how often is Natalie on with the board? Is she calling up just to chat? She made this call sound very casual, like she was chatting with a girlfriend. I am seriously needing information about Natalie in season two. As the two women approach the elevator, they are met by a third. Hey, it's the richest lady in baby camp.
0: Gabby. Natalie, hello.
1: Yep, it's Gabby Arteta. The Egan family gala brings out all the local celebs. Oh, and by the way, at this point, any Heli has no idea who she is or where she is. As they get on the elevator, Natalie touches Heli on the shoulder.
0: Gabby, this is Helena Egan.
1: The camera pans over to Gabby. my
0: gosh, Helena. So good to finally meet you.
1: The shot pans back to Helly, who has had the wind knocked out of her by this revelation about her identity. She keeps it together, but barely. Check the framing of this shot of Helly. The whole thing is very cool. She has her back to the glass wall of the elevator. We can see what's in the large hall below, but it's very blurred out with Helly in sharp focus in the foreground. The positioning of the decorations down in the hall makes it look like these blue lines are emanating from Helly's head. The earrings she's wearing pick up some of the backlight. It's really an amazing frame. It would make a cool poster. Brett Lauer turns to the camera with wide staring eyes. She moves slightly. You can sense the tension in her body. She wants out of there. This is far worse than anything she could have imagined. She is an Egan? The camera holds on Heli. She swallows hard as the elevator is descending. Outwardly, she's calm and composed, but the panic is evident in her eyes. The music builds. Any Heli is still trying to wrap her brain around this turn of events. The music crescendos, and we're into our theme. Feeling a little tense, Refiners? You better shake it off. If that's the first four minutes, imagine what's coming in the next 40. If I were you, I'd take a moment to catch my breath during the opening sequence. This roller coaster is just leaving the station. I'll talk to you on the other side. We come back from the credit sequence looking at Superman. Or, I mean, Dylan in the security office. The camera's doing a slow zoom into the chip control room. Dylan is splayed wide across the door. Right now, the only danger to losing the connection is Dylan losing his grip. In a monumental bit of bad prep for this assignment, Dylan did not remove his coat. It seems like doing this stretch for an extended period would be a lot easier without the suit coat. Just holding position like this has got to be making the massive delts of Dylan start to quake. He throws a look over his shoulder.
0: This better be working, assholes.
1: He's addressing the Lucite block with the Macrodats picture in it. It would appear when you do good work around the Severance offices, you must also get a 3D Lucite headcube. Dan Erickson uses a pic of his head in a 3D Lucite cube for his Twitter profile. And by the way, if you get the chance, go check out Dan's Twitter feed. Make sure to scroll down. Starting in mid-2012, for about a year, he posted a one-liner almost every single day. Here's a sample. Argo, as I understand it, is a pirate-themed remake of the Katie Holmes film, Go." These musings give me hope for my own screenwriting aspirations. We cut back to Mark making his way to the bathroom in Beer House. This episode is done almost entirely in real time. Occasionally, they do jump back slightly to catch overlapping action between scenes. Otherwise, it's all done like it's happening live. This is pretty amazing when you consider all of these scenes were shot both months and miles apart. The scenes with Herb were shot early on before most of the rest of the episode. Getting it to make sense and feel seamless was a huge feat of both organization and editing. As Mark heads down the hallway, check the art on the walls of Beer House. Much of it is Rickon. When Mark is coming towards the camera, there's a caricature of Ricken to the right of the screen. It's not a 100% refiner type caricature. This one is much nicer in color and it seems to be on canvas. When the angle reverses, the picture above the towel rack in the bathroom also seems to be of Rickon. The picture on the wall to Mark's right, just before he enters the bathroom, is definitely a painting of the head of Rickon. Now, who else do we know in this epic story who likes to have himself immortalized in paintings? It might be a clue or just another visible symptom of Rickon's raging narcissism. Mark closes himself in the bathroom, looking freaked. Where am I? He has no frame of reference. Is this his house? Is he visiting someone? How does he know these people, if he's visiting? Mark turns and catches a glimpse of himself in the mirror. His innie is seeing his outie standing there in casual clothes. Mark's innie didn't even know he owned casual clothes. Devin is out in the hall.
0: Mark, you okay, my lady?
1: Mark throws open the bathroom door. Devin's standing there holding Eleanor. So, Rebecca smells weird. This might make for a long evening, especially if they have their noses in the same book. Rebecca smells weird. Oh, right. Any Mark doesn't know Rebecca. Devin also said she was making chewing noises, but not chewing anything. Rickon certainly has some weird friends. Mark is repeating everything Devin says, trying to get a handle on the situation. Devin explains she's telling him just in case they need to share a book. A book, right. Mm-hmm. The
0: one you forgot to bring, even though I did remind you.
1: Devin is being quite helpful when it comes to providing some exposition for any Mark, although she hasn't signaled just how the two of them are related. Mark takes a long look at Eleanor and then takes a shot. How's our baby? Oops. Nice try, but you missed on that one.
0: I'm going to assume you mean that in that it takes the village sense. and she's good? She's hungry.
1: Okay, so not his wife, not his baby. Devin walks past Mark into the bathroom. She says she wants to have the life change talk, but she has to pump before she dies. I'll be really fast. Okay. okay. I don't think whatever's left of the eight minutes Rickon mentioned at the end of the last episode is going to be enough time to get across what Mark needs to tell Devin. And speaking of eight minutes... Did you catch the ticking clock embedded in the soundtrack? The brilliance of severance is in the details. Mark heads back out to the main area of the house. Yeah, that is definitely a picture of Rick and he's walking by there on the right. How's our baby? Cut to a handheld POV in Irv's apartment. We see his hand reach out to turn off the boombox. There will be no painting for any Irv. He's got work to do. Any Irv hears the sound of radar shaking in the other room. Irv pets him and finds the tag with his name. Ms. Casey was right. Another stutter cut. Back at Beer House, Mark is coming into the kitchen. Patton and Denise, who we also met at the No Dinner dinner party, approach Mark. They seem to have been discussing the proper etiquette for introducing baby Eleanor. They aren't happy about how it's being handled. Mark, we were just discussing whether it might have been a wiser move for your sister to put off introducing the child until after tonight's event. Mark, you don't have to weigh in on that. I think this might be Patton kissing up to Rickon. He's implying the introduction of the new baby might in some way overshadow or upstage the reading. This doesn't surprise me. Coming from these two, getting in Rickon's good graces seems to be of major importance to all of the no-dinner dinner party guests. Mark doesn't really hear the argument. All he hears is, the lady with the baby is his sister, not his wife. Okay, one puzzle solved. Mark pushes on past them.
0: Well, that was awkward.
1: Mark is talking through what he's learned so far. His sister has the baby, and Cobell is here. Cobell is here? Yeah, what's up with Cobell being here? Rebecca, the goofy, gray-haired bird lady who we also met at the No Dinner Dinner Party, suddenly appears next to Mark.
0: I've been asked to share my book with you.
1: Any e. Mark makes the connection. So I've heard. Uh, Rebecca. Rebecca. This poor woman with the half-name, who smells funny and chews for no reason... How could things be any worse? I have
0: small eyes, so I have to
1: read pretty close. Okay, that adds a new wrinkle. And I
0: have some sores on the back of my head from my bird. You might see them.
1: Okay, wow. Her match.com inbox must just be full constantly. Mark decides Devin is his best option for sharing his secret. He finds her in the kitchen where she's having a glass of wine.
0: Hello, Mark. I pumped, so it's Miller time. Okay, so life changed. What's happening?
1: Finally, we don't know how much longer Dylan can hold things together. We're, um, this is going to sound weird. <laughs> Come on, Mark. You're going to have to pick things up here. We're close, you and I. Devin is confused. This sounds important, but also a little weird. From the other room, we hear... Hey,
0: my dearest ones, uh, we are nearing
1: Dang, it's time for the reading. Devin says they can talk during the first reflection break. Watch the camera movement around Beer House. Most of what we are seeing here was shot using Steadicam. Ben Stiller said in each location he would hate it when they got to the finale scenes because it meant breaking out the Steadicam. The entire first season of Severance was shot as a nine-hour movie in location order. Wherever they were, they would shoot every scene taking place in that location. Every scene of Mark and Selvig at the townhouses throughout the entire season was shot while they were at the townhouses in Nyack. Every scene at Beerhouse, from the No Dinner Dinner Party all the way through to this finale book reading, was shot while the cast and crew were at Beerhouse. Keeping it all straight and making sure it all made sense was a monumental task. Jessica Ligagne said the finale footage was so fragmented, no one really knew what they even had until they got it into editing. The editors were able to find the story in what was basically a huge mass of footage shot all up and down the East Coast over the course of several months. Stutter cut to Irv, still in his apartment. Irv doesn't seem to have taken Mark's tell-somebody directive to heart. At least, he's not hurrying. Irv also doesn't seem as freaked or as disoriented as Mark. This is possibly because he's alone in his apartment. But also, is it possible Irv's innie has tried something like this before? It might be why he was reset, but there could be some residual memory. Irv's bedroom is stark, mirroring his military background. There's a small display of medals on a table by the bed. There's also a framed display of uniform insignia. Herb seems to know where he's going if slowly. He opens the door to his bedroom closet. The closet door becomes a transition back to the Egan Gala. We rejoin Natalie and Helly who are listening to a chatty Gabby. She's saying, How much kids can change your life? How,
0: how many kids do you have? Just gave birth to my third.
1: She says she should have stopped at two. Senator Arteta, turned out in a tux, meets up with the group. Hey, there you are. Wow, Natalie seems to be on a first name basis. Angelo, great to see you. You too. Seriously, who the heck is Natalie? Gabby introduces Helly to her husband, the senator. Helena, nice to meet you. Natalie, who also seems to have quite a bit of responsibility when it comes to these proceedings, says she needs to hop backstage. Innie Helly is left standing with the Artetas. Audi Helly seems to be a schmoozer. Innie Helly is trying.
0: Wow, three kids. I couldn't have done it without a little help.
1: <laughs> so the new mother's little helper is Severance?
0: I mean the idea that people would want to outlaw Severance?
1: Yep, guess so. Any heli could provide some strong points on the other side of this debate, but instead, she swallows hard and decides to keep her mouth shut. These folks are certainly not a safe place to reveal her any secret. Quick cut back to Herb's place. He's looking on the shelves of his closet. He runs his hand along the selection of suits and light blue shirts hanging to one side. He normally only sees these while he's wearing them down on the severed floor. Sitting on the floor of the closet is a military-style footlocker. Herb slides it out into the bedroom. Quick cut, back to the gala. The photo display is very moving. We haven't seen them yet, but throughout the gala are huge picture displays of all the macrodats working in the MDR space. These shots are blown up to wall size. Many of them are on rotating panels set up throughout the floor of the gala. Britt Lauer said that, yes, it was a bit off-putting to be walking around this set with these huge pictures of her everywhere she turned. These shots are the fruits of Seth's camera from the past three weeks. His mission was to find those times when Helly smiled. If you're watching for it, she didn't smile nearly as much as we're seeing in these pictures. Once I knew why Seth was snapping all the pics, I started watching for Helly's smiles. There must have been other times during these events when she smiled, but we weren't looking. Aside from when she smiled with the maracas, I don't think I ever saw another one. Arteta continues. I already knew how I'd be voting, but I think well seeing that and seeing you and hearing what you have to say, all of this could really make a difference. Helly says she hopes so, but we know she doesn't hope so. Any Helly is like a card-carrying communist who stumbled into a young Republican fundraiser. Let's change some minds. Oh, Helly certainly hopes to change some minds, just not in the direction Arteta is thinking. Well, I'm certainly going to try. Arteta gives Helly a big and sincere thank you. Then he also adds for her to say thanks to her father if she sees him. Like any good politician, he's got to say thanks to the checkbook who made his campaign possible. The expression on Helly's face tells us she maybe hasn't considered her father. Her eyes get wide, and she possibly even gets a bit of a grin on her face. We stutter cut back to Mark at Beer House. The sound of a small handbell can be heard. It's being used to gather people into the study. As Mark comes down the stairs into the study, check the guy seated on the windowsill. At 12 minutes and 32 seconds, he comes into view from frame right. It's the guy with the beard and a big smile. This would be series creator, writer, and executive producer Dan Erickson doing a little Alfred Hitchcock-style cameo here in the finale. He has a right to smile. He sold his show to Ben Stiller, and the first season is a hit. Dan appears to be in deep conversation with Devin. He then says hi to Mark as he passes. Rebecca, of the tiny eyes and sores on the back of her head, calls to Mark. Here we get a camera move we're going to see several times in the next few minutes. It's called a whip pan. A whip pan is where the whole camera head swings through a huge arc, going from one subject, Mark, over to Rebecca on the other side of the room. This whip pan becomes a visual signature of these beer house scenes. Rebecca saved them a seat.
0: I'm just starting to find my glasses...
1: Any Mark is glancing around the room trying to take in as much as he can when Rebecca asks if he can hold the book. She hands him her copy of the UUR. She has no idea what a life changing tome this was for Any Mark. The annoying bell sound continues. Mark's head slowly raises as he understands what's happening. Instead of a reverse angle cutaway from Mark, which is what we normally get anytime anyone is looking at anything, we instead get another whip pan. The whip pan is more cumbersome, but so much more dramatic than a cut. The camera head spins to reveal the luxurious mane and bearded visage of none other than Dr. Rickon Laszlo Hale, PhD.
0: Sorry, you can't unring the bell ringing app, apparently.
1: (laughs) Rickon gets a nice laugh for the dad joke. He's waving his phone around. It's what was creating the bell. Any Mark is blown away seeing this man in the flesh. His only literary hero and the greatest influence on his life other than Petey is standing right in front of him. Rickon opens his remarks saying family is his bedrock. So I
0: dedicate the reading to To my firstborn daughter who is here tonight. Eleanor,
1: I love you. He waves a hand in Devin's direction like he's some kind of a sweatered sorcerer. She is wearing baby Eleanor on her front. Check the table behind Devin. Rickon is taking advantage of the gathering to try and move some back product. Not only is Rickon's new book being displayed, but his other four titles are also available for sale should you want to take one home with you after tonight's reading. The new one is, of course, the UUR. You Are. Back when we first found it on the Severed Floor, I mentioned the also-by titles blurbed on the cover, My Own Petard and Life of an American Gadfly. The other two titles by Ricken are Dr. Rickens Wisdom from the Withered and The Fun in Profundity for a total of five books in the Rickonverse. Each is featured in a bookstore-style stacked display on the table. Please don't make them go looking for any of these titles at your local Barnes & Noble, if you do still live anywhere near a Barnes & Noble, because they aren't going to find them. After pausing on Devin and the Baby, there's another whip pan around to Mark and Rebecca. Mark is stunned, but he's starting to make some connections. Woman with Baby is his sister, Man speaking, points to woman and daughter, so... My brother-in-law. Yeah, and your Audi thinks he's a goofball. The reading commences. And with
0: that, I begin. It's said that as a child, Wolfgang Mozart killed another boy by slamming his head in a piano.
1: Only it's not true. Rickon's extensive research has proven this claim to be false, but it made your heart race, didn't it? Rickon says this is the power of an author, even if the author's a liar. Any Mark is looking on with rapt adoration. Selvig grabs a seat in the row behind him and puts her head over his shoulder.
0: The power of an author. Can I look at her her
1: book, too? Annie Mark looks freaked. Funny smells and phantom chewing are bad enough. Now he's got Cobell, his very intimidating boss, hanging her head over his shoulder to read along. What indeed is you? Cut back to the gala. Gabby and the senator are headed for their seats. It's
0: great to meet you, Helena.
1: As they walk away, Annie Helly notices the floor display for the first time. Rickon's voice can still be heard asking the question, Who are you? Helly is seeing she is the new face of Severance for Lumen. Her smiling inny self comes spinning around in front of her on a giant turntable. The title page, Helly, A Severed Story, follows. As the giant blurb of text spins by, Helly's head obscures the Y for just a second, and we get Hell, A Severed Story. When this Severance creative team nails down a visual theme, they do stay with it. Hey, there's a pick of Helly in the OR, just as they're about to jam the cursed chip in her gray matter. She's got a huge smile on her face. Her head is being held steady between two enormous clamps. Checking back with Dylan, he's still spread-eagled across the security door, holding those switches open. Yes, with his arms spread wide, there is quite the Christ-on-the-cross symbolism happening here. After 10 or 15 minutes of this, you know he has to be hurting. There doesn't seem to be a timeout on the OTC. As long as the switches are held open, the innies are active. Dylan is straining, but he's still holding on. Back at Herbs, he realizes the key to the footlocker is in his jeans. He opens it to reveal U.S. Navy duffel bags and uniforms. An old picture of a younger man is tucked in one of the uniforms. It contains one word on the back. Dad. This footlocker has created some questions about Irv's military service. Several theorists believe this locker proves Irv has a military background. It might, but these things might also be keepsakes from Irv's dad. There's the old pick of dad in the locker. It has been noted the uniforms he picks up look like they're in the style of World War II. There's no way Irv served during World War II, but his father could easily have been part of the greatest generation. I've always subscribed to speculation saying Irv was in the military in a hot war. Now he uses art therapy as a way to deal with his PTSD. Finding a hot war in Irv's history is the trick. Irv is even too young to have realistically served in Vietnam. The very last of those who served in Nam are now in their late 60s or early 70s. Irv may have been involved with the first desert storm in 1991. If he was career Navy, he definitely would have been involved. Also, more than 21,000 Navy reservists were called up to serve in Iraq shortly after the start of operations in January of 91. Irv's background remains a bit of a mystery. According to Dan Erickson, we're going to get more into the lives of our Audis in Season 2. Maybe we'll learn more about Irv's history then. Irv continues to dig into the locker as we hear Rickon's voice taking us back to the book reading. They're doing a great job layering in elements from each scene to move us seamlessly from any to any.
0: Oh, creatures, from the leaping cat to the cowering shrew, think of themselves as you, a logical center for the universe. Yet the cat eats the shrew, and we, like Schrodinger, live on to wonder what it means.
1: Wow. So it sounds like you can put about anything on paper and get it published in Kier. We get reverse cuts between Mark and Rickon. Whip pans would have been a bit cumbersome here. Mark is looking on with rapt adoration. Rebecca looks scared to death. Cobel may be about to nibble Mark's neck.
0: End of chapter.
1: Rickon looks wrung out. This is emotionally draining. He bows his head as he accepts applause. Rickon announces a seven-minute reflection break. While everyone's reflecting, we need to revisit what we know about Rick and Hale. In the episode Hide and Seek, I said we didn't know anything about him. Well, since then, I've come across a bio on Rickon. It was published by Michael Chernus on Twitter during a fan forum April first of 2022. What it feels like is an actor exercise. It's pretty common, especially in the theater, for a director to task a performer with giving their character a backstory. It's normally for the performer's benefit. The theory says the actor will be able to portray the character more fully if they know the character's background and motivations. If this Rickon bio is true, it kind of kills the theories about Rickon being an heir to the Egan legacy. Although, it might also be a fiction created as a smokescreen to throw off biographic researchers or potential Egan bashers. Here's the background Michael Chernus gave for Ricken. It's pretty wild. Ricken was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, the son of two successful theater artists who both came from old money. Old Egan money, maybe? There's not a huge professional theater scene in Indy, so I'm betting they're primarily living off the inheritance. Michael doesn't give any dates, so we don't know his age. This next part is very weird, Both Rickon's conception and his birth took place on stage. It was part of a nine-month performance piece created by Rickon's mom. The birthing cabins at Damona seem pretty normal when you compare them to an on-stage birth. Rickon's parents were emotionally distant and did not seem to have a handle on the basics of parenting. They considered Rickon unsophisticated and resented having to teach him about art and culture. A shy teen, Rickon found solace writing plays and poetry. His parents mocked his work as pedestrian. When he turned 18, his parents forwarded him a large chunk of his inheritance. They basically told Rickon to buzz off until he found his real voice. He doesn't say where they met, but the bio says Rickon fell for Devon immediately. He loved her dry wit and the way she called him out on his pretensions. She found Rickon funny and sweet, despite his overpowering pretentiousness. Since this backstory was released as part of a cast Q&A, I'm betting it's canon. I doubt Erickson and Stiller would let something like this out if it goes against the core story, especially if it negates a plot point as big as Rickon being related to the Eagans. But, and we've had this before, it might be a misdirection, a red herring designed to throw us off the scent. Ricken calls for someone named Balf to prepare the netty pot. Rebecca looks shaken. It's
0: transformative. i going to have to change my
1: name again. So it sounds like her weird half name was of her own choosing. Is it possible one of Ricken's previous books inspired her to choose the name Rebecca? Selvig slash Cobell calls Ricken a wordsmith, but comments on something he might have in his throat. Devin leans in to Mark. I'm
0: going to see if she'll have more bottle. Give me a couple minutes and meet me in the baby
1: room. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah, the whole gotta tell people we trust about what happens on the severed floor thing. Mark was so transported at seeing his idol, he seems to have almost forgotten the mission. Dylan is sweating it out in the security office while Mark is casually enjoying the party. Oh, and Dan Erickson is acting his butt off in the background of this scene. Don't miss it. He's really earning his day rate. Mr. Hale, Rickon. Any Mark was truly moved by Rickon's reading. He heads for the balcony where Rickon is reflecting. Mark even calls him Mr. Hale. I don't know why my voice shakes like that. They sound like a sad old hamburger waiter. There's a whole nother world happening in Rickon's head. What the heck is a hamburger waiter, and how do sad old ones even sound?
0: Hamburger waiter? What the fuck is that? Jesus, why do I ever open my buffoon
1: mouth? Rickon is racked with self-doubt. What if he's not a literary genius, but instead tends to run more towards the prattling dork who's living off mommy and daddy's sizable inheritance? Nah, that couldn't be it, could it? Mark ignores Rickon as he continues to beat himself up. Mark says it's going great. I mean, the book is brilliant. Okay, Mark, thank you. You don't have to say that. I'm well aware of how I come across to you. Any Mark says he means it, and he does. I'm continually surprised by Rickon's level of self-awareness. Someone that weird and that wrapped up in their own fantasy world usually doesn't recognize the naysayers. Any Mark is speaking any truth. Your book, it it opened up the world for me. Rickon pauses. This can't be his eye-rolling brother-in-law.
0: Mark, are you okay? Yes.
1: Any Mark continues, trying to convince him.
0: This book changed my whole life. You
1: actually read it. Any Mark sincerely asks Rickon if they are friends. Rickon interprets this in a bigger context, thinking Mark has been hurt by his past comments about the procedure. Rickon throws in a little more exposition to help any Mark in his discovery.
0: You had to deal with Gemma's passing in the way that was best for you.
1: Rickon says he was scrolling through old pictures just earlier today when he came across the four of them on the crest hike. You remember the funny bees? Mark wants to know if he has the picture on him. Rickon starts to search his phone for it when Balf arrives.
0: Uh, Rickon, the neti pot is warm. Oh,
1: thank you, Balf. You're hearing correctly. This character's name is Balf, B-A-L-F. Balf is being played by writer and actor Rajat Sharesh. Rajat has been working in show business going back to 2014. In 2020, his career got a jumpstart when he landed a gig as a comedy writer on the Stephen Colbert animated news series, Tuning Out the News. Rajat worked on 27 episodes as a writer, and for eight of those, he also provided an additional voice. Balfe said he's warmed up the neti pot. Neti, N-E-T-I, is a practice found in Hatha Yoga. Neti specifically refers to the yogic system of body cleansing techniques. Hala neti, J-A-L-A, what Rickon is about to practice, is a technique where sterilized lukewarm salt water is poured into one nostril and leaves through the other. It is also possible to take the saline through the nose so it exits through the mouth. The procedure flushes the sinuses. It also removes debris from the nasal passages and thins the mucus. Nettie is great for preventing or treating nasal allergies. It's also used extensively by announcers, singers, and other voice performers.
0: Mark, I need to flush my sinuses.
1: Rickon rushes off, telling Mark he has no idea what all this ego-fluffing has meant to him. Thankfully, Mark does not have a chance to tell his any secret to Rickon. I don't think Rickon could have taken the focus off himself long enough to even really hear what Mark was saying. Mark heads back into the main room. As he enters, he does a double-take and makes a bit of a face when he sees Cobell. She sort of cuts him off as he tries to make his way by her. Mark, I was worried about you. Mark says he's fine, thanks. He pushes his way by, saying he needs to check on his sister. Before he can escape her gravitational field... Selvig chases him down with this question.
0: When you hugged me before, you suddenly became tense. What was that?
1: Oh, it was the moment he switched to his any self and realized one of the scariest people in his world was hugging him. We serve gear! Mark tries to shrug it off. Oh, I didn't know I did. She says he's tense now. Did you mean what you said before? She wants to know more about these plans he has to quit. Any Mark has no idea what she's talking about. Selvig looks so suspicious... She can tell something is up. He stumbles through an excuse to get away from her.
0: You know, I, I'm so sorry. I'm just I'm on
1: uncle duty for my sister, so I'll, I'll be right back. Okay. Cobell says okay. Now, if Mark had just walked away, all would be fine. But no, he had to cap the conversation with. Okay, thanks, Ms. Cobell. Um, Mark, that's Mrs. Selvig, your sister's lactation consultant and your next door neighbor. As Mark walks away, there is a reverse cut to Patricia Arquette's face. Her eyes are the definition of flinty. Her face is hard. She caught that, and she suddenly understands why Mark is acting so weird. It's all coming into focus. She knows why Dylan got chosen again for the waffle party. She even understands why unhappy Helly came alive and made Quota. Those scheming macrodats. Thanks, Miss Cobell. Back at the gala, Annie Helly is overwhelmed by the propaganda created using her likeness. There don't seem to be any pics of her hanging from an electrical cord in the elevator. That wouldn't be on brand. There's Annie Helly laughing behind Dylan G. There she is, smiling coyly from her workstation. Yes, sir, this Annie Life is the one for me. There's Mark in still life delivering the morning announcements. Stutter cut back to Beer House. Mark is making his way down the hall to finally get a few minutes alone with Devin. Another whip pan as Devin is coming out of the baby room holding a screaming baby. There's a note of urgency in Mark's voice. He really needs to talk to her. There's no telling how much longer Dylan can hold out.
0: I know. I just have to deal with her. She's having a meltdown. She
1: tells Mark to wait in the bedroom. She'll be right back. Devin heads down the hallway, rocking Eleanor and trying to quiet her. She runs into Mrs. Selvig.
0: Hi, can you take her for a quick sec while I talk to Mark? Of course, love. Thank you.
1: Devin heads back to where Mark is waiting. Mrs. Selvig starts to rock a still fussy Eleanor. A quick question here, and this one didn't hit me until later viewings. Why did Cobell take the baby here? Why is she even still standing around in the hallway? She already heard Mark say her severed floor name. Is it really taking her this long to figure out what's going on? She asked Devin if Mark is okay. Hearing Mark is wanting to have a private talk with Devin might have triggered something. Whatever it was, it seems like it took Cobell a long time to make these connections. When Devin enters the bedroom, Mark stands silently, not sure how to get into this incredibly complicated subject. You get the idea this is really it. No more interruptions. We cut back to Heli at the gala. She's still wandering through the display. It's a multimedia extravaganza. There's video of helly 's Audi talking about how swell it was to be a member of one of the richest and creepiest families on the planet.
0: So one of the things you learned growing up as an Egan is
1: that the workers are our family. Ah, she said when she was little, this confused her. She thought she had a few hundred thousand literal brothers and sisters scattered around the world. The largest private employer in the world is Walmart with 2.3 million people. McDonald's has 1.7 million. So Lumen isn't the largest, but with a few hundred thousand, they would be right up there. The woman on the screen is so different from the any heli we've gotten to know. Her hair is different, the blazer, the perfect makeup, the wide smile, the I'm on feel to her presentation. The recording says she would not ask any of her work brothers and sisters to do anything she's not ready and excited to do herself, meaning getting severed. We find Outie Heli was raised to say the core principles every night before she went to bed. Funny how she has no memory of those principles or her study of Keir as an innie. Once an any has been indoctrinated, there seems to be some residual carryover even after their reset. I'm basing this observation on Irv. There's no way you could become that well versed in the lore of Cure in only three years. Audi Helena says she knows her dad wishes she was sitting there saying she was doing this out of some Egan family loyalty.
0: But I took a separate job because it sounds freaking awesome.
1: Watching this, any heli looks like she's either going to be sick or pass out. How weird would it be watching yourself so sincerely saying these things that go so against what you believe? Oh, but there's more. I don't
0: think severance divides us. I think it brings us
1: together. At the end of Audi Heli's speech, a Lumen logo dissolves on screen. Under it appears the phrase, United in severance. They are all in on severance here at Lumen. Too bad nobody told any heli about the company line. For the second episode in a row, we cut to a scene of Cobell driving recklessly through the streets of Kier. The production company is really abusing that poor white rabbit. While racing through the intersections at breakneck speed, she's also... On her phone. Greetings.
0: I'm not here right God now. damn it, but... we'll check.
1: Back at Irv's place, he's taken the tray out of the footlocker. In the lower compartment, he's found notes, news articles, a whole treasure trove of interesting stuff. It all seems to be severance and lumen-themed. The first thing he stops on is a news article attached to a clipboard. Its headline, severed worker sues for information following injury. The subhead says lumen should be held responsible. Turns out a Lumen severed employee named Dalton Emery, and I checked, he's not a severance crew member, came up the severed elevator one day with a bad pain in his left hand. His index finger developed shooting pain, then a few days later, lost all feeling. Lumen claims his innie had a mishap with a printer. Printers are number two behind water coolers when it comes to the cause of any mishaps, Emery's attorney says the damage is consistent with some kind of a crushing injury, not a printer injury. The suit says Dalton should be told what really happened to his finger, then be compensated for it. It's amazing to think in the space of maybe a couple of years, the Severance production crew has generated decades worth of Lumen and Kier history. Every one of these lists, news articles, old ads, direction sheets, worksheets, any document you glimpse for even a second had to be created. Anything with a Lumen logo on it was created by the production team. If you dig into all of these supporting documents, you can tell there are some pretty funny people working on severance. They're reining it in, but you can tell. A line in this article says, Emery no longer had feeling in his left index finger, rendering the digit decorative. It also says, following the injury, Emery now, quote, finds himself struggling with elevator buttons, selecting his preferred gas variety, and entering his PIN number. His life is forever changed by this injury, unquote. Although I got a chuckle out of it, Irv looks at this article with concern, then sets it aside. Next up is a dog-eared sheaf of paper's marked severed employee list. That's a pretty direct title. This is the list I used to cross-reference the names we saw on the boards in the security office. We really get some great shots of this list. It looks like it was originally prepared in a word processor or a spreadsheet program, but it now contains a number of handwritten notations. The information is scattershot. All of the entries seem to have first and last names. There are ages on a few. Some have dates they were severed, addresses, level of education, oddball details like how far they live from Lumen. Sheila Bach, it says, has a black dog. There's a lot of info, but there are also a lot of holes. You can tell this is something Audi Irv has been working on for a long time. After meeting any Irv, this is a surprising level of subversiveness. He's going against the company of Kier Egan. Audi Irv must not be an acolyte of Kier. Aside from folks like the Egan family, I don't think anyone in the upworld is really aware of the cult of Kier the way they are on the severed floor. Now, Cobell is a true believer, but she keeps her shrine hidden in the basement. Sure, everyone is aware of the founder, they all live in a town named Kier. They also know the giant company with the big building that employs half the town was founded by a guy named Kier, which explains the town name. I think that's pretty much where the Audi world kind of stops when it comes to their relationship with Kier Egan. To the upworlders, Kier is not an industrial demigod who wrote a four-volume Bible. That worship is reserved for the innies, and for some reason, people like Milchik and Cobell, who seem to be non severed believers. I'd still love to know more about their connection to the cult of Kier. Under the list of names, Irv finds a Kier regional roadmap. It's a product of Gadabout Guides and only 695. This is more of the analog life we see around Kier and especially on the severed floor. Who still uses a paper map? Well, Audi Irv, for one, In 2022, we'd expect him to be plugging these addresses into his GPS. It's possible, keeping notes and lists off any kind of computer or internet-connected device, he can protect them from being hacked. Since we are talking about the power and reach of Lumen, this is probably a good idea. The map of Cure we get to look at with Irv is actually a map of Schenectady, New York. You can see the Mohawk River running along the top. There are a couple of cemeteries and parks identified on Irv's map that match up. It's definitely Schenectady standing in for cure. Any Irv pulls out an envelope. It's a piece of junk mail from the Myrtle Egan Credit Union with his address on it. He's trying to get his bearings. Man, Myrtle had her hands in everything, didn't she? School for girls, credit union. Myrtle was not content with just being CEO of a multinational corporation. The logo in the return address is the same ME in a circle as what we saw on the button in Cobell's Shrine to Kier. Myrtle is good about staying on brand and getting her logo out there. The envelope is addressed to Irving Bailov, 424 Plainside Drive, Kier, PE 07452. In the real world of the United States in 2023, 07452 is the zip code for Glen Rock, New Jersey. This seems to put Keir in its own state with its own set of zip codes. Big kudos to props and set decoration. Not only is there an Emmy logo in the return address of this mailer, the graphics on the little picture of the credit card are actually for the Myrtle Egan Credit Union. This mailer, which we see for three seconds and it gets moved around a lot, was entirely created for this scene from the ground up. A few names have been written on the gadabout map of Kier. Irv runs his finger along the streets until he lands on the notation for Bert Goodman. Outie Irv seems to have already located Bert G as his Outie self. Stutter cut back to Helly wandering around pictures of her gigantic self. She finds the bathroom. She needs a break from all this up-with-severance propaganda. Not sure where these bathrooms are really located, but I'm guessing this is also being shot in the Holmdel complex. They are some pretty cool-looking bathrooms. Helly is shaky. She's having trouble catching her breath as she steadies herself on the edge of the sink. She studies her reflection in the mirror. We can hear the door open.
0: Hold on. She's in here,
1: sir. We get a cool Steadicam move around Helly. I don't mind Steadicam. I'm not sure why Ben Stiller hates it so much. The move continues until the shot is over Helly's shoulder. When the camera settles, we are looking at a living version of the wax figure who greeted the gang in the Perpetuity Wing. This is current Lumen CEO James Egan. Hello. Oh, no. James is being played by Australian actor Michael Syberry. Michael has 45 entries on his IMDb profile. Two of those are newer than the listing for Severance. Like many of our other cast members, Michael is also a veteran stage performer. Syberry was born in Tasmania, Australia, but he got his start on TV in a 1983 British series called The Old Men at the Zoo. Syberry has a lot of single-episode guest star credits. He also played Larry in the 2014 Michael Keaton movie, Birdman. Michael is... Older, but not old. He's really 66 here. He looks like he's 86. The quavering voice and frail demeanor add to the feeling of advanced age. I think they've even pumped up the bags under his eyes. The way he draws down his mouth, it all adds years. So, any helly probably recognizes Jame from his fairly lifelike wax figure in the Perpetuity Wing. He
0: looks so nice.
1: Like a film. Using the phrase, like a film, also adds to the idea he's pretty old. James crosses to her and asks if she's still in pain. He's referencing the suicide attempt, which is new information for him. She says, no, not anymore. He closes his hands over hers. James is wearing a pinky ring containing the image of an older Lumen logo. He then says something that caught my attention.
0: I cried in my bed when they told me what she tried to do to you.
1: They brought him news in his bed. This is not a well man. This sounds like a partially bedridden man. I wonder when he was actually notified. Nobody knew about the suicide attempt when it happened. Audi Helly spent at least a night in the hospital, but Cobell somehow managed to cover it up. Milchick and Grainer were the only other ones to know, so it had to be one of them who snitched. Jane must not have known what had happened until whoever it was delivered the pictures Natalie showed Cobell. That would have probably been just yesterday or even early this morning. So this is the first her father has seen her since her suicide attempt from three weeks ago? He must not have seen her or he'd have seen the bruises. This raises a question. Would Audi Helly have kept the suicide attempt by her any A secret from her old man? She came to as her Audi. I don't think they tried to tell her it was a water cooler accident. Along with Grainer, Milchick, and Cobell, Audi Helly would also have known what any Helly had done. I don't think Audi Helly would want to share the news of the attempt with Daddy Jame. She is driven to make this work. We heard that when she was talking to Milchick in the stairwell and in her message back to Helly's videoed retirement request. To the Audi world, Helly is the super-severed worker. She's proving this program is great and safe. A physical attack by her any and one that came close to killing her would not be a positive event to report back to Daddy. I think if Cobell mentioned it, Audi Helly would have agreed she needed to keep the suicide attempt quiet. This is telling me the Eagans are not a close-knit family and James is not keeping regular office hours. It's also possible Outie Helly didn't tell him so as to not upset him. He's pretty old and frail. I did notice, of course, he doesn't blame it on her. What that innie tried to do. It seems the way to embrace severance is to build up a healthy hatred for the innies. If you hate that innie persona, it's easier to ignore their request for you to let them out. If you can get people in general to hate innies as a group, it makes it easier to sell people on the concept of severance. Don't worry about those innies, they're terrible people. They deserve what they get. Jame lets his thought about Helly's hated innie drop before shifting gears. Thank you for
0: going through with
1: it. He makes it sound like it's something she had to be talked into. We're still not entirely sure about Helly's motivations for severing. Either she thought it was freaking awesome, as she said in the promo interview, or she really did do it out of a sense of loyalty to the Egan family name.
0: The grandfather would cherish what you've done.
1: This is probably a reference to Kier, but we're not sure of the significance. This is the first time we've heard anybody use this term. The grandfather might be a general term of endearment, or it's possibly being used like a title. Using the does make it sound like a title. If James is referring to Keir as his literal grandfather, this would put James' birth at the latest in the 1930s, which would make him now in his 80s. James is like a cryptic oracle. And one day,
0: you will sit with me at my revolving.
1: His what? Explaining The Revolving has sparked numerous social media theories. It's definitely much more than a retirement dinner, but we're not sure what. For most of the other seven CEOs, the year they stopped being CEO is the same year they died. We're not certain if they died in office or if somehow the office kills them. The nature of The Revolving is one of Lumen's many mysteries, which will hopefully be addressed in season two. Helly's eyes are wide and unblinking at the mention of the revolving. She doesn't know what it is, but I don't see her wanting to sit with this man at a McDonald's, let alone at his revolving.
0: Are you feeling well?
1: She stammers, saying she thinks the drink maybe just pit her a little bit.
0: You'll be all right for the speech.
1: Ah, yes, the speech. James seems to have a lot riding on this speech. Helly is his severed success story. She's the one who will change minds and lead them all to severed bliss. Helly says, of course, to the speech. I don't think it's going to have the tone James was hoping for. James starts to reminisce. Do you
0: remember when I bought home the first chip to show you?
1: He calls that chip the prototype.
0: It had the blue and green lights back then.
1: And that's when he went nuts decorating the entire office in nothing but blues and greens. James then fills in some of those childhood memories Annie Helly was complaining about missing. I remember you said to me,
0: it's so pretty, Daddy. Everybody in the whole world should get one. They will.
1: Because of you. Gut punch to Annie Helly. She looks a bit shaky, her eyes fixed, she swallows but doesn't speak.
0: They'll all be Keir's children.
1: Okay, there's a little glimpse into crazy time. I think James is the driving force behind this darker application of Severance. He's the one wanting to spread the cult of Keir. Severance has legitimate business applications. It's the ultimate non-disclosure agreement. But the way they're using it down on the severed floor, Severance also has this creepy cult overlay. I think James is more motivated by the cult recruitment options. The Children of Cure comment pushed him well into the creepy cult category. It also echoes Kier's Children of My Industry quote. Now, James got a spokesperson for his twisted program. Helly is the young, pretty, vivacious face of the procedure, and he plans to use her to sell it. If Helena Egan, daughter of Lumen CEO Jame Egan, got severed, it must be safe. Sign me up. Jame managed to give us a loose timeline here, even if he didn't tell us his age. In the episode Half Loop during the Get Acquainted game with the Red Rubber Ball, Milchik said Helly was 30 years old. If Jame brought home a prototype and Helly was old enough to comment on it, let's do some wild speculation and say she was maybe in the eight to 10-year-old range. Helly's 30, so she was born in about 1992. Jame must have been bringing home prototypes of the severance chip by 2002. Somewhere between 03 and 05, CEO Leonora Egan either steps down or is removed or dies, or some combination of all three. Whatever happened, this is when Jame takes over. This is also when the severance program goes into high gear. Herb's list shows severed workers going back to 2007. Those are quite possibly some of the earliest severed workers. The severed floor is then built with the Perpetuity Wing in place to school the innies on the finer points of the lore of Keir. It is Jame who welcomes you to the Perpetuity Wing because this is all his vision.
0: They'll all be Kier's children.
1: The door opens.
0: Mr. Egan, Helena, it's time to head to stage.
1: Helly is holding it together, but she is not blinking. Her demeanor is calm and cool, but check the eyes. The freakout is happening in Helly's eyes. James turns and exits. Helly has a few moments alone to herself before it's time to take the stage for her oh-so-important speech. Helly turns to see herself in the mirror. This is any Helly, but she is looking at the reflection of outie Helly. The clothes, the hair, the earrings. She is looking into the eyes of the woman who said she was not a person. Heli begins to speak to her reflection. Forgive
0: me for the
1: harm I have caused this world. She only has one mantra and this is it. The compunction statement, which she's definitely repeated somewhere north of 800 times, comes into her head. Not me. This is Audi Heli. She's watching say these words. She is making Audi Helly beg for forgiveness. And only in me
0: shall there stain
1: my mom. The stain of being an Egan, perhaps? No matter how tightly something is scripted, there are always surprises which happen once the material is in the hands of the performer. Getting in character can pull out these very natural but jaw dropping reactions. This is one of those gems. Helly was supposed to turn to the mirror and regard her reflection with distaste. Instead, this popped out. It was decided on the day Britt Lauer should repeat the compunction statement to her reflection. I don't know if it was Britt, Ben, Dan, or someone else who thought of it, but this haunting and intense moment was conceived and executed as the scene was being shot. Even in a production as tightly planned out as this one, it's nice to know some ad-libs are allowed in now and then. As Helly finishes her mantra, we get another stutter cut to Irv. He's in motion, and we're following him around his apartment with a cam. He grabs his key ring off the desk and slips on a leather jacket. It looks like any Irv, armed with a paper map of a city where he's never been, is going to try to drive. Driving is something he's never done, but he might have a vague sense about how it works. When Irv gets outside, he realizes he doesn't know his own car. He's carrying GM keys and, oh hey, the fob he's carrying is a Nova logo. A green Chevy Nova, and of course it's green, is one of the closest cars to the apartment door. Irv gives it a try and it fires right up. John Turturro is having fun learning how to drive check his face as he puts it in gear. It's stop and start, but eventually Irv backs right into the camera. Pretty good for a first-time driver. We get another almost detail about where we are from Irv's license plate. There's no state identifier anywhere on the plate, but it does have an icon in the center between the letters and numbers. It looks like it could be a relief of the head of Kier, sort of like the 30-foot tall one we saw out at Lumen. Also, along the bottom of the plate is the Latin phrase remedium hominibus. This translates to a cure for mankind in the sense of treating mankind, not that mankind is a disease that must be cured. If it was talking about mankind being the disease, it would read remedium hominum." This nova herbs driving is from the late 60s or early 70s. Harmony's VW Rabbit is from the 70s and 80s. I think the old cars might be a nod to the old tech they used in the movie Brazil. Much of the tone of Severance is inspired by Brazil. The shiny future world of Terry Gilliam's 1985 movie features a lot of strange old tech, like rotary dial phones or tiny black-and-white computer monitors. The old cars being used here add to the odd timelessness of the Severance timeline. Irv figures out how to shift to drive and heads out of the apartment building parking lot. His eyes are wide, and he looks pretty confused about how all this works, but he's in motion.
0: You swear you're not fucking with me. I swear.
1: Mark seems to have gotten Devin past the initial explanation about what's going on. This
0: is so insane.
1: He tells her they need to send someone down to check out every inch of that place. Inspectors or whatever. Is that a thing, inspectors? Devin assures him, yes, inspectors are a thing. We can tell Devin is one who perceives the innies as separate entities. Mark
0: has, I mean, out here, you have been trying to figure out what Lumen does, what you
1: do. Any Mark is not so global in his thinking. He doesn't seem to care too much about what Lumen's up to. He says in a very plaintive voice, he just wants to know why. Why he put me in there. There's a long pause. Devin explains he lost his wife. She then corrects herself. You lost your
0: wife. A little before you started at Lumen.
1: Mark has stored this detail away following his conversation with Rick and Gemma. Devin quickly brings Mark up to speed on his Audi life. She tells him about the car accident, how he tried to keep teaching. I was a teacher,
0: a professor of history.
1: She says he tried to go back only three weeks after the accident, after she died. It
0: was a disaster.
1: If Mark was able to go back to work only three weeks after the wreck, this would indicate he was not physically hurt. For some reason, I've always been under the impression both Mark and Gemma were involved in the crash. I thought Mark was driving the car and Gemma was killed as a passenger. This information from Devin is making me reconsider this idea. I've gone back through those conversations where Gemma's death is discussed. Aside from the very vague reference to a car wreck, we never get details as to what exactly happened. Could Gemma have been driving herself? Was she alone in the car? If Mark was back in class only three weeks after a fatal car wreck, it doesn't sound like he would have been involved. Was Gemma's death a freak occurrence? Could she have survived the crash? Gemma being killed by internal injuries or having died in an accident she should most likely have survived lends credence to both the reanimation and she-never-really-died theories about Ms. Casey. This also raises a lot of questions about the authenticity of the accident. Could it have been staged by Lumen? Could Lumen have somehow swooped in and stolen the body? Did Mark get to see Gemma's body after the accident? If Lumen is interested in studying either Gemma or Mark, then why are they interested? Ms. Casey and what really happened to Gemma is becoming as big a question mark as Ms. Cobell. She
0: was just still in your veins, you know, making everything hurt.
1: I can't tell if this is a clue or just a favorite writer's phrase. Keir loves to reference weakness living in your veins. We saw the quote, Let not weakness live in your veins, on the wall of the wellness waiting area. Irv quoted the passage about snuffing out the weakness in your veins as he and Bert were viewing the painting, The Youthful Convalescence of Keir. Now, here we've got Devon choosing this as a metaphor for the weakness caused by Mark's grief. Is it because Devon's dialogue is being written by the same guy who also writes Keir's words? Or is this a clue that Devin is some super-secret-surprise-cure-acolyte? I'm leaning towards favorite writer's phrase. Devin is trying to make excuses for Audi Mark's choice. She says he thought the severed job would spare him some pain. Which it does, but it's sparing Audi Mark his pain. As Ragabi said, any Mark was brought into existence without his permission. Any Mark is the unfortunate side effect of Audi Mark's relief. Any Mark is a doomed soul who lives a tortured and relentless existence with no benefit to himself and no idea why he's seemingly being punished. Any Mark says that's a nice name, Gemma. We were all really close. It was great. Anybody else thinking about Dylan straining 13 floors below ground while these guys get to have their very relaxed conversation? She was wonderful. She made you wonderful. Gemma was a gem, and it sounds like the best part of Mark. Devin and Mark share a meaningful look. I'd rather they get back to some important communication type stuff. This OTC isn't forever. I'm also curious about how the security office, 13 levels underground, is in communication with these chips. Heli isn't far, but two of them have to be at least a few miles away from the main complex. There must be some big communication arrays on the roof of the Lumen building. I'm also wondering just how far away can the chips be controlled? Is it possible for a severed employee to get themselves out of range a place where their chip can't be controlled by the home office, this adds a sinister spin to company housing. Giving the severed folks a place to live might just be the perfect way to keep those chips in range. This topic causes me to want to take a quick ramble down a side road. After learning about this long-distance control, I've always wondered why no one controlled Petey. Once the Severed Floor Gang realized Petey was in the wind, it seems like Grainer could have reached out with this control option. They could have remotely put him to sleep wherever he was until someone could locate him and come pick him up. Worst case, they could have run the clean slate and he's left an amnesia victim with no idea about who he is. Ragabi must have taken him offline or somehow protected his chip as part of the reintegration process. If range was an issue... He may have been out of range at Gans College, but he'd have definitely been within control range at Mark's place. His chip had to have been protected. Drumbeats begin behind Mark and Devin, which transition us to any Irv now tooling around Keir in his Chevy Nova sedan. As Irv approaches a red light, he stops to check his map. He seems to be doing a pretty good job navigating, considering he's never been here before. While Innie Irv is getting his bearings, Harmony Cobell comes roaring around the corner in the oncoming lane. As she passes, the focus is handed off to Harmony. We cut to her inside the car. She's roaring down a wet city street at night while also making a phone call. Hang up and drive, Harmony. Cut to a close-up of Milchik's phone. Surprise, surprise, he's getting an incoming call from Cobell. This time, he takes it. They told me not to talk to you.
0: The goddamn OTC's been triggered. Mark S is a fucking idiot. What? That's not possible.
1: We cut to an oncoming shot of the White Rabbit roaring through the rain-slick streets. A couple of thoughts as Harmony endangers the good citizens of Kier. I'm curious who they is who told Seth not to talk to Cobell. Who is the next level of administration? Who is Seth reporting to? If he truly is the only administrator left down on the severed floor, when will they be assigning him some help? I'm also curious as to why Cobell cares about any of this. She was fired She's already had the impotent rage freakout of the underappreciated fired employee. Why is she now so concerned about these people who are no longer her co-workers or her responsibility? It's time to heal, Harmony, and move on. She might be taking this pseudo-escape of the innies... As a personal affront to her management.
0: Dylan, they've been plotting this all along.
1: Seth realizes the biggest implication. Cobell at the gala. Kobel says she'll take care of Helly. Oh,
0: fix it. My God, fix everything.
1: Again, not at a company where you aren't employed. Fixing everything is no longer your job at Lumen. I keep having more and more questions about Harmony.
0: Get to the security office and shut it off now! Uh
1: Uh-oh. Sounds like Dylan's modified waffle party is about to be shut down. We cut to Seth in full run through the halls. Jacob Ribicoff said this is his favorite scene of this episode because of the sound. The Foley guys had to come up with running sounds for Milchick, that would cut through the very dense and tense soundtrack. Listen to the running footfalls of Milchik's hard leather shoes. Yes. Look at how rocking and shaky the camera is as it follows him. Steady cam on the run. You can feel how different this footage is than our usual in the hall's movement. This is the difference between Dolly and Steadicam. Milchik gets to the security office door. He's brought up short by Dylan's belt. God damn it! Dylan! Cut to inside the security office. Dylan continues to hold on to the OTC switches. Milchik tells him to open the door. Dylan responds with a very adolescent-sounding phrase. Fuck! He's telling him F you, but he's also keeping in the very polite and respectful Mr. We get a cut to each of Dylan's hands before leaving the security office. Cut to Devin still talking with Mark in the back bedroom. I'm amazed they got this much time together without Rickon resuming the reading. Devin is saying Rickon has a lot of connections with high-end journalists in New York. I also find this amazing. She thinks they should probably take this story to the journalists. Mark wonders if that's a better option than the police. Well,
0: Lumen has their hands in so many pies. Sorry, do you understand metaphor? Yeah, hands in pies, I get it.
1: I think it's interesting how easily Devin has transitioned to communicating with an innie. She's aware of the possible limitations. Going to the press sounds like a good idea, but based on what we learned in the Lexington letter... Journalists may also be cowed by the power of Lumen. Devin rightly says they have to be careful who they talk to about this. She asks Mark how much time he has. I don't know, maybe an hour? Not if Seth Milchick has anything to say about it. Devin realizes once Mark's bosses figure out what's happening, his visit will be cut short. This spurs a memory with Mark his visit has been pretty full up to this point. Jesus, I totally forgot. Cobell. Why is Cobell here? Devin has no idea what he's talking about. His boss from Lumen? Silver hair, flinty eyes, dressed in a flowing purple thing. Devin suddenly realizes he's talking about Mrs. Selvig. And she works at Lumen? Exactly. Mrs. Selvig, who you handed your infant to just moments ago. Jesus
0: fucking Christ.
1: Devin runs out of the bedroom searching for Selving. In the background, that badass Macrodat music begins. Stutter cut to Helly with heavy blue tones all around her. She's got the Macrodat strut going. Her jaw is set and the look in her eyes is pure mayhem. The only thing missing is Mark's face. You know, wrong side out? Natalie may be leading the way, but Helly is setting the pace for this mission. Stutter cut to Irv, still behind the wheel of the Nova. We have a pretty good idea which address he's searching for. In the hallways outside the security office, Milchik pulls out a lockback knife. He's decided to take the direct approach to dealing with Dylan's belt. Dylan, why are you doing this, man? He starts to saw through the belt. Come on. You are the refiner of the quarter. Back at Beer House, the reading has resumed. I was surprised Rickon would let it go on without Mark or Devin in the audience. Devin is frantically searching for Mrs. Selvig. Mrs. Selvig? Is
0: she there? Is Mrs. Selvig there? Do you... Mrs. Selvig? She has Eleanor.
1: When it's obvious Selvig is gone, the reading breaks up. Everyone scatters throughout the house. We don't know what room Dan Erickson chose to search, but he's in there somewhere. Devin heads outside to see Selvig's car is gone. I
0: gave him the baby and she left!
1: Rickon is still trying to get his head around what she's saying. She
0: left? I her the, baby! With the Alidor? She left!
1: Rickon says they should go back inside and look. Devin is quickly approaching full freakout mode. Cut to a close up of Irv's hand holding the map. Well, would you look at that? He's got Bert G's address visible. Irv pulls up outside Bert's house. There is a slow whip pan looking at outie Bert Goodman's home. Any e. Irving B. stays sitting in his car watching. Another cut back to the security office. As we cut from shot to shot and scene to scene, you start to understand the incredible role editing played when it came to bringing this episode together. We are looking at an awesome close-up of Milchik's eye peering through the crack of the tied-off security office door. He continues to saw at Dylan's belt. I bet the tempers were disappointing. I'll still get you back in there. Milchik is playing to Dylan's weakness for waffle parties. It sounds like the ladies playing the tempers may be regulars from quarter to quarter. Quick aside, and I should have brought this up last episode this is Dylan's third quarterly waffle party. This means once every three months, Audi Dylan tells his wife he'll be home late because he's earned some award at work. Then he comes home very sleepy, smelling of maple syrup and stripper perfume. I think Audi Dylan's wife might have a grievance here. Milchik is desperately trying to persuade Dylan as he continues to saw. Hey, This
0: stuff you don't even know about. There's', there's paintball.
1: There's coffee cosies. Dylan, come on. Dang! Milchik is pulling out the big guns. Coffee cosies. Just say the word and I'll get you a coffee cozy literally right now, Dylan. Come on man. How did we not know about the coffee cosies? Listen for the sawing and creaking sound of Dylan's belt. Eric Strasser and George Lara were the Foley artists tasked with creating the sounds of Dylan's belt being cut by Milchik. They used leather creaks for tension. They sawed through leather and cloth with a serrated knife, then matched the sounds to the motion of Trammell Tillman's sawing. They even added cloth tears in the extreme close-ups so you'd get the sound of the fibers ripping apart. Dylan is holding tight. The perks are not working. You know what Trump's coffee cozies?
0: I want to remember my fucking kid being born!
1: Exactly. Since perks aren't working, Milchik nimbly switches his approach. You have two others. I can tell you about them.
0: Just open the door and I'll tell you their names. Come on, Dylan!
1: Whoa, this is fighting dirty. You can see Dylan is thinking about it. He stays true to his fellow macrodats, but damn, that was a low blow on Milchik's part. Cut to a sweeping nighttime aerial shot. This is some very cool nighttime drone work. Make sure to check it out. We sweep down past the transistor water tower just in time to catch up with the speeding Volkswagen Rabbit. We follow along with the Rabbit for a bit. Harmony Cobell is rushing out to the big Egan Gala in order to stop any Heliar from, well, whatever she might come up with. Heli R. is very creative when it comes to her acts of rebellion. Cobell still has a couple of minutes before she reaches the building, so time for a quick aside. Why Heli R.? What's with the R? Well, on her LinkedIn Audi ID, it says her last name is Riggs. So that explains the R instead of an E, but why Riggs? I was thinking Riggs is maybe a middle name or possibly the maiden name of some old aunt or grandma. Nope. According to what I've been able to find out, this last name was assigned by Lumen to be used by Helly so she could go undercover as an Innie. Not sure why she'd need to go with it as an Audi. Helena Egan seems to be very well known and liked by the hundreds of thousands of her brothers and sisters at Lumen. If she is so well known around Lumen that she's the face of severance, having Helly Riggs on her name tag probably isn't going to fool anyone. In a hilariously cobell thing to do, she jumps out of the rabbit, but it's either in neutral or still in gear. It starts to roll. Not sure if this was intentional, but it had the effect of sending the valet guys scurrying after the car. If anybody was checking invitations or guest lists, they certainly aren't now. I'm betting Harmony is probably on a do-not-admit list, considering the way she was dumped earlier today. If Natalie has anything to do with it, and I'm betting she does, she's going to keep scary Harmony as far away from the festivities as possible. Cobell sweeps right up the blue-clad steps as her car continues down the drive. Cut to Helly inside the gala. She's on a mission striding along past her many pictures and recordings. She arrives backstage where Natalie is waiting. The stage manager wishes her luck. Nat says she'll tee Helly up. Use the line about how you see your innie as your sister. They'll love that. Maybe you shouldn't mention this sister tried to kill you and has threatened to maim you. Hellie says she's got it. Oh man, has she ever got it. It's going to be great. Irv is still in his car, too nervous to approach Bert's door. He'd have to explain who he is. Audi Bert won't know him. Could he even get Bert to listen? If he can get anybody to listen to his severance story, any Irv thinks it would be Bert's outie. There's a reverse cut to large picture windows across the front of Bert's house. It's fully dark out now. Bert is clearly visible, crossing in the front room. He's carrying something. Ben Stiller said these scenes outside of Bert's place were a difficult shoot. Not because of where they were or what they were shooting, but because it was so early in the shooting process. These are some of the first scenes they shot for the entire season. Stiller said he really felt like they were flying blind here. He knew it was going to be a continuous shot and they were going to have to use Steadicam. The concern was they hadn't shot most of the episode. They didn't know what the rest of it was going to look like or if it was all going to fit together. He said they just went for it and hoped it would all come together in the edit. As Irv watches, we can see Bert is talking to someone out of view. Another man, heavy-set about Bert's age, comes into the room. He puts a sweater over Bert's shoulders as Bert takes a selfie of the two of them with a film camera. They both laugh. Audi Bert has a significant other. If not a husband, at least a boyfriend who is living with him. Irv watches, realizing. You can see the disappointment in his face. Back at Beer House, the search for Eleanor continues. She's not in the baby room. Mark, along with the no dinner dinner party crew, are frantically searching. Have all these rooms been checked? Mark steps into a study off the front hall. There's a really clear shot of the small and canvas on the wall as Mark passes by. The reverse cut into the study reveals Mark's face. We can hear the baby. She sounds fine. As Mark is looking down at Eleanor, we get a reverse shot. She's sitting quietly on the corner of an area rug in her pumpkin seat. She starts to cry at all of the activity. Patton pushes around Mark. Oh, thank God. Devin, I got her! He picks up the carrier and starts into the other room. I found her! I found your child! I'm the one who found her! This is such a weird thing to be taking so much credit for. I think this goes back to these people wanting Rickon's praise and validation. Finding Rickon's baby is going to incur maximum Rickon favor. I really think Patton is hoping to bask in a little Rick and Glory. Why would Selvig stash the baby here? Podcast listener Melissa McCurry wondered if Cobell may have placed the baby in this room specifically to lure Mark so he would see the picture of Gemma. Interesting idea, but I don't think so. I think Cobell's reaction was a panic response to realizing Mark was his innie. She suddenly had to get rid of the baby. This room was easily accessible and allowed her to slip out to her car quickly. Her overriding motivation was to correct whatever was going on with the innies. The baby was suddenly in the way of that. Since there was no guarantee as to who would have found the baby, I don't think she could have targeted or lured Mark by placing it here. Mark is left standing in the study as Patton runs down the hall shouting, He's the one who found Eleanor! Well, what does Mark care? Let Patton take the credit if it's important to him. Mark gets a look of fascination on his face as something across the room catches his attention. It's a grouping of framed pictures on the corner of a table. There are several of Rickon, of course. There's one in the middle there that looks like... Could it be? Dylan! We cut back to the security office. The pressure cooker is about to blow. Dylan can't hold on much longer, and Seth doesn't seem to have much more to go on that belt. Milchik's forehead is shiny with sweat. Close-up of the belt almost severed through. We hear Natalie. A
0: happier workplace.
1: She's priming the crowd, getting ready to introduce severed Lumen employee, Helena Egan. Nat's standing in front of an enormous picture of Helly's head. Natalie says there have been setbacks, bumps in the road.
0: But I'm here tonight to tell you that we are on the verge of a revolution.
1: This seems like a slow-moving revolution. Again, going back to Seth's comment about the chips working. Haven't they been doing this for quite a while? Like 15 years or more? We must be witnessing some major upgrade to the severance chip or a change in what it can do. It feels like something is different and whatever it is has changed in just the last few months. Natalie continues saying, This is a revolution that will put the human being, the kind and empathetic human being, first. Kind and empathetic, as long as they aren't considering the life of their any, Helly is watching from the wings when she is suddenly grabbed by the shoulders and spun around. It's Cobell. Not sure how she got this far into the gala, but I'm betting security didn't want to mess with the likes of a PO'd Harmony Cobell. This is proof. If you look like you know what you're doing, nobody will bother you. We cut to a shot of Helly's POV. Cobell is right in her face. Is it you? Helly... Tries to play dumb at first, but Cobell's not buying it.
0: It is you, isn't it?
1: Helly gets right in her face. I'm gonna kill your company. Cobell says, "No, it's your company." Who the hell do you think you are? Helly R. Pissed off Macrodat Any, that's who she is. Cobell goes for the jugular. Your
0: friends are gonna suffer. You may know Mark will suffer. You'll be long gone alive
1: in pain i don't know how Cobell thinks she's gonna be a part of all this she seems to keep forgetting she was fired i'm also thinking too much pain is not going to go down well with the outies the stage manager grabs heli by the arm and tells her she's on heli gets in position ready to go on stage it's too late Cobell can't stop her before we cut away grab a quick look at the stage manager she was on for a few seconds earlier, but we barely got to see her. The stage manager is being played by Amy Stiller. She's a New York-based actress with 53 credits on her IMDb profile. Amy was born in 1961, the daughter of legendary comedy duo Jerry Stiller and Anne Mira, which means Amy Stiller has a little brother named Ben. Amy has mainly appeared on episodes of TV, but she's also got a few movies listed, No surprise, many of Amy's big screen credits are for things like Dodgeball, Tropic Thunder, Zoolander, and Zoolander 2. Cut to Irv still sitting outside of Bert's house, considering. Now that he knows about Bert's significant other, should he still try to connect with Audi Bert? Natalie's introduction of Helly can be heard over the shots of Irv. Then we cut to Mark still approaching the pictures on the table. Natalie says, why don't we hear all about it from someone who can tell us firsthand?
0: Ladies and gentlemen, our guest of honor, Helena Egan.
1: We cut to a straight on view of the spot where Natalie had been standing. In a hilariously heavy handed visual, we watch Helly's head split right down the middle, right between the eyes. Helly walks out onto the stage between the two halves of her giant head. Helly is standing centered in front of a Lumen logo, her smiling face now split and on either side of the stage. Any Helly is not smiling. She thanks Natalie. We get a cut to Jame looking on like an animated corpse from the back of the room. Over at Beer House, Mark has picked up the obscured picture from the table. As he studies it, we get a reverse angle. The picture is of Mark and Ms. Casey, or I mean Gemma, on their wedding day. They are both smiling. Mark is looking to his laughing bride. A smiling Gemma is looking right into the camera. Any Mark's knees get weak. This can't be. Hold on. She's... Mark suddenly runs out of the room. Cut to Irv getting out of the Nova. He's decided Bert is his best hope for sharing his any information. Cut back to the security office door. Only Seth's knife is visible. We can see it continuing to saw through Dylan's belt. It won't be long now. Dylan watches, unable to stop Milchik. He'll break the OTC connection if he moves an inch. Mark is running down a hallway at Beer House in slow motion. David! Irv continues to trudge up Bert's walk. Helly takes the stage. My name is
0: Helly R., I'm an inny.
1: Close up on the knife blade, so close to being through that belt. Mark is coming around the corner of the hallway.
0: And everything they told you about severance is a lie.
1: This gets a laugh? Of course it does. She wouldn't really be knocking severance, would she? This is Helena Egan, daughter of CEO Jame, the most visible severed employee in the world. Surely she's joking. Cut to Irv knocking on Bert's door. Back at Lumen, the laughter has subsided and Helly is getting serious. No, no,
0: no. Listen. We're not happy. We're miserable.
1: There's a reaction shot to Natalie. She realizes this is not the speech Helly was supposed to give. Another cut to Irv, then back to the security office where Seth is finally through the belt. Helly finally has the attention of the room.
0: They torture us down there. Wow,
1: she is ripping the guts out of the severance program in a few seconds. Mark and Milchik are both running towards the camera in slow-mo. Quick cuts to Mark, then Seth in the security office, then back to Helly.
0: We're prisoners.
1: Helly is cut off. Natalie has tackled her from the side hard. They both go flying off the stage frame right. Milchik is coming around the corner face to face with Dylan. Dylan is feral, growling, preparing himself for the hit cut to mark right in the camera back to irv pounding on the door calling for bert then to dylan still holding on just like natalie seth decides the only way to make this stop is with a full body tackle milchik hits dylan right in the chest and takes him down as they both go flying across the room we see the otc switches release the lights go to off stutter cut lumen sound Zali effect and the innies are gone cut to black and silence then
0: you sitting there yacking right in my face i guess i'm gonna have to put you in your place you know your silence was golden you couldn't raise it down
1: the cut we're hearing is called your mind is on vacation by american jazz pianist Mose Allison. It was the first cut on his 1976 studio album of the same name. And Refiners, that is it. This is the end of season one of Severance. We have been left on the highest of all possible cliffs for this cliffhanger. According to Dan Erickson, he originally wanted to take this season a bit further. The story would have continued on originally, but production discussions kept coming back to how far should we go with season one? Dan said it was Ben Stiller who ultimately thought this season should end here, at the point where Mark realizes Gemma is alive and the OTC clicks off. Dan claims his immediate reaction was, People are gonna hate us. Well, yeah, but only if you don't give us a season two. So, refiners, you might think you're all done with me for a while, but that's not necessarily the case. We have more to talk about. First off, we need to discuss what each of these outies is about to face, now that the OTC is turned off. They have no idea what just happened, but they are going to be hit with the fallout. We'll talk about what might have happened one second after the end of the episode. We'll also have a look at what we know and kind of know about season two. I also may have some additional details left from my season one research that just didn't fit anywhere else. We'll get into all of it next time, but for now, this file is at 100%. If you could, please use the feather duster on your keyboard before leaving. Once you've turned off your workstations, you can leave by the elevator and, as usual, make sure to stagger your exits. You know that
0: life is short, talk is cheap. Don't be making promises that you can't keep. You don't like this little song I'm singing, just winning by it. All I can say is if the shoe feels wet and you must keep talking, please try to make it right. Because your mind is on vacation and your mouth is working. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate sevens podcast. Severed is written, Produced and hosted by Alan Stair.
1: Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavour Content, or Apple TV Plus. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance,
0: the Severance logo, and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavour Content, Apple TV Plus, or their respective copyright holders.
1: Please make sure to leave a five star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.